Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. Business Class had the opportunity to sit down with Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Australia. Currently, Mr. Rudd is the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. The subject of the conversation is China. This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hello, this is Dick Drobnik. I'm the director of the Executive Mid-Career MBA program at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. And I'm here on the sidelines of the Asia Society's 2018 trustee meeting and I've got the great opportunity to interview Kevin Rudd. Kevin is the president of the Asia Society's Policy Institute and a former Prime Minister of Australia and the former Foreign Minister of Australia. Kevin, thank you for joining our program. Happy to be with you and I look forward to the conversation. Great. Tell me a little bit about the Asia Society's Policy Institute and what you've done in the last couple of years and what you hope to do in the next year or two. The Asia Society, which is an American institution, um, had a great vision when it was established nearly 70 years ago, uh, which was how do you build a bridge between the United States and the various countries, cultures, civilizations of Asia. And back in the 50s, that's pretty revolutionary. So full marks to the uh, John D. Rockefeller Rockefeller, for coming up with the idea. And that was in the middle of the Cold War. Roll the clock on to the present, what our trustees decided to do probably about three or four years ago was to take that platform which is focused on arts and culture, education and the convening of major national events involving leaders from the region to build a think tank, a think-do tank is how I describe it. Um, And it has three big programs. Uh, That is our analysis of uh, security within the Asia-Pacific region our analysis of uh, what's happening in the regional economy, trade, investment, business, technology, innovation, and thirdly, what's happening with sustainability, climate, and the interests of, frankly, next-generation Asia. Now, it's not just that we pursue those subject areas, but what we try to do is move the dial in the debate uh, within governments and within broader uh, public policy circles so that none of these challenges of the wider region end up undermining our collective peace, prosperity and sustainability. Uh, we've been going for three or four years. Um, the University of Pennsylvania ratings ha- for a startup has us um, now ranked in the top 50 of, of America's 1,700 foreign policy think tanks. So, uh, 1,700? So I'm told. That's uh, counting Professor Jones in the corner office. <laughs> um, I don't know, but that's the UPenn listing, and yeah. people should go to their website. And um, you're quite a large country, I've discovered, here in the United <laughs> States. And there's a lot of stuff happening that none of us will ever know about. Uh, so we're a startup. I think we're having our voice now heard, but we've got a long way to go. Well, earlier today, you were in Annapolis. You are at the U.S. Naval Academy uh, giving your talk about your views about U.S.-China relationship. Uh, its great improvement or its deterioration. Please tell us a little bit about that or what's the the highlights of your views. Well, the bottom line is I think when we look back at 2018, it will be a watershed, Uh, a watershed between what was, frankly, the previous 40 years of U.S.-China relations 
based on a period of strategic engagement between the two countries, going back to the seminal openings of China by Deng Xiaoping back in 1978. Most of your listeners will know the story in one form or another. A more open economy, China open for trade, open for investment, Chinese students are rolling around the world, uh, now Chinese tourists. This is a different China to the closed doors of Mao's Cultural Revolution and the well, communist China we read about before then. And the Chinese tourists coming to California are the highest spending per capita tourists of any that we get. And uh, the same in Sydney and the same in Melbourne. And uh, these guys are out to have a good time. So uh, we should be welcoming of them. Uh, they've actually become the next wave of the Japanese tourism wave we saw hmm. back in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and, and, and the property buying wave. And as you know, that generates its own complexities, yeah. uh, opportunities and complexities. However, by the time we get to 2018, we start to see um, two big things happen. Uh, China under Xi Jinping, who became leader in 2012-13, uh, has um, effectively left behind Deng Xiaoping's core axiom, which was prioritize the economy, hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead, and just get on with the business of turning this poor country into a developed country. Xi Jinping instead has said, well, we're on our way, and we're doing well, and it's time for China to have a bigger voice and a bigger place in the affairs of the region and the world. It's been quite a big shift. And by the time we roll around to 2018, we now see the Trump administration in Washington delivering a series of major policy statements now pushing back fundamentally against this new direction in Chinese thought and policy and action. You see it in the US National Security Strategy of December 2017. National Defense Strategy of January this year, the new National Defense Manufacturing Industry Strategy, which was released only a few months ago. Uh, you see it also in the beginning of the trade war, and we still don't know where that one's going to end. And then, of course, a speech in the last several days, in October of 2018, by Vice President Pence at the Hudson Institute. What do these things all say? If I was to sum it up, it's this administration concluding that these 40 years of strategic engagement, it didn't work in terms of America's enduring interests and values in the world. And we now are entering into a new period of strategic competition. When I say, therefore, that 2018 will be seen as a watershed, that's what I'm pointing to. And what do you think will be the one or two or three major thrusts of the United States in this era of strategic competition? As we try to is look... It is it just tariffs? If we try to look through the fog, uh, I was going to say the fog of war, but let's not use that term, the mist, uh, or as St. Paul the, said the, in the New the Testament... The mist of a trade war. <laughs> as, we, as St. Paul said in the New Testament, that we are staring but through a glass dimly uh, into the future. It's a bit along like these lines. The thing which has obviously agitated President Trump uh, is what he's concluded to be a raft of unfair trading practices by the Chinese, uh, effective market access, non-reciprocity and investment access into the two economies, etc. Uh, as well as uh, the hardy old faithfuls of intellectual property theft, uh, in addition to now uh, the whole question of uh, forced technology transfer. 
and plain old espionage. Wrap all that together, that's the American critique. Through 2017, the Trump administration said to the Chinese, you need to change. As of um, mid-18, President Trump said time's up and began his series of tariff measures. We're now about halfway through those measures and there's still a half to go. But beyond tariff, I think you actually need to look at what will now unfold in the broader, bigger, more sensitive technology debate. The big reaction in the United States and in other countries including Germany and Japan has been the roll-on implications of China 2025, its national manufacturing strategy, which if you look at it carefully identifies critical categories of the, uh, let's call them the commanding heights of high technology for the next 20 years in the global economy. And China's national resolve is we're going to not only dominate China's domestic market in these things from robotics plus, uh, all fields of artificial intelligence, uh, new materials, etc. We're going to dominate the global market too. And we're going to do it uh, by throwing the full horsepower of, let's call it the uh, Chinese military industrial complex, to borrow a term from L Lyndon Baines Johnson. But, but of course, as Americans, we don't believe state planning works. So why are we afraid of the Chinese? Uh, that's a matter for you Americans to answer. I'm just a visiting Australian interloper. What would I know? All I know is, if I look back in American history, uh, you've benefited somewhat from the efforts uh, of the military-industrial complex here yourselves over the years. Tremendously uh, from the efforts and from DARPA. And uh, the rest as well. So you look uh, at uh, where did uh, computing come from? Uh, where did advanced computing come from? Uh, if it wasn't for defense programs of the 50s and 60s and 70s, America would not have probably dominated this market. The well, Chinese have the been, internet. The Chinese have been keen students of America's path to national success, right from uh, labor-intensive, uh, low-cost manufacturing for export, which is when, when you sent most of the British textile industries out of business in the late 19th century, uh, through to what's now happening at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st. We, we also stole British technologies at the World Exhibitions in London and on and on and on. Well, you know something, I'm shocked by that because <laughs> I've always been told that you were God-fearing Puritan Americans and that uh, at Plymouth Rock you all swore never to do that as the British had done to you. But that's for you guys to answer. Um, so technology is the second big terrain. So if you're a tech firm, it's going to get rough. Uh, you are at the front line of what will become the emerging economic conflict between China and the United States. And therefore, thinking carefully through your strategy, taking fully into account country risk factors and political risk factors will be more important now than ever before. And then the third big change I'd point to is in military strategy itself. And you begin to see this with freedom of uh, navigation operations in the South China Sea, called in the profession FONOPS, where you will see more robust measures being adopted by the United States Navy challenging uh, Chinese maritime claims in the South uh, China Sea and resulting in a number of near misses as occurred just last week with the USS Decatur which went within 46 yards of a Chinese naval frigate. Yes, that uh, creates tension and creates worries and, and you think the Navy is going to more aggressively patrol to, to get closer to Chinese frigates? 
The honest answer to that question is, I don't know. And of course, the US explanation as to what happened with the USS Decatur is that the Chinese ignored uh, the, um, uh, the uh, operational procedures already laid out in inter-navy and inter-military protocols agreed to within the last five or ten years mm. on how to avoid incidents at sea and avoid incidents in the air. So it's getting willing out there. Um, and if I'm to make a prediction, it's likely to become and get more willing. Uh, those of us who have a mind for history become concerned about the capacity of a single small incident that was one hundred years ago. Um, uh, Sarajevo. Uh, which suddenly triggers itself into a series of consequential actions. And before you know it, you're into an ugly space which you probably didn't want to be in the first place. Yeah. Moving away from the military risks, what about the business risks? What, what do you hear or what do you see from your business colleagues and uh, businesses that ask you to give them some advice? I don't wish to hedge my bets here, but I need to say this. It's a little too early to tell. And the reason I say that is because China and its evaluation of this change quite fundamentally in US strategy, China's own evaluation processes take time. They are quite deliberative. Uh, in their August leadership retreat at Beidouhe, the beachside resort about two hours east of Beijing, the leadership looked long and hard at all the evidence they'd picked up from around the world about what was happening in US strategy. And they've concluded that there's been a fundamental shift here. What hasn't been concluded yet is their response to that shift. Part of my remarks US Naval Academy uh, at Annapolis in, here in October of 2018 this morning was simply to say, uh, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to work this out. You push back against somebody, push back big time, there are two options really. Uh, they concede or they double down. And there are some shades of grey in between those two polarities. Um, so the key question to think through as China evaluates its own national response to this uh, change in US strategy is will China concede to the terms which America is now demanding through its trade and trade plus broader economic negotiations uh, with the Chinese uh, government or will they double down and become more mercantilist, more nationalist uh, and frankly uh, more difficult uh, to deal with. Now that hasn't happened yet, but that's the process underway within the Chinese uh, think tank and government communities as we speak. In part two of this business class interview with Kevin Rudd, the focus will be on what China and the U.S. are expecting of each other. Business class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.